Welcome to the New Books Network. The Taliban movement and its Mujahideen predecessor have had remarkable victories seeing off two superpowers, first the Soviets and then the Americans. But are they stronger when resisting than when they're in power? Afghans may fight for them, but do they actually want to live under them? And what kind of government have they formed? Questions for the author of the world's first and best-known book on the Taliban, which was published back when they were in power last time round. Uh, so, Ahmed Rashid, welcome. Thank you. Uh, when, was the, when was the first Taliban book published, actually? The first book was published just a few months before 9-11. And that draft of the book talked about the dangers of the Taliban and uh, how they pose a threat to the world by hosting groups such as al-Qaeda, and Osama bin Laden. So it was very uh, uh, plausible when 9-11 did happen. There was very little information about the Taliban. Who were these people who were hosting bin Laden and who who seemed to be very sympathetic to al-Qaeda? The book obviously took off after that. Originally, no one really wanted it, right, to publish it? I had a very difficult time publishing it. I mean, the book had been finished about a year earlier, and I took it to publishers in London, in New York, and, and everybody said, well, you know, who are these people? We don't know. They're, they're not important. I said, they're, they're going to become very important. And you should think about publishing the book. And finally, a, a, an academic uh, press, I.B. Taurus in London and Yale University in, in America, agreed to publish it. And even then, as a, as a hardback, because of the dire warnings of al-Qaeda and what the Taliban were doing in Afghanistan, especially to women, education, and other things. The book actually sold quite a few hard copy just before 9-11. But after 9-11, of course, you know, you had people like presidents and prime ministers and defense ministers and intelligence chiefs all reading the book. So it was quite an interesting period for me. Of course, because it became, didn't it? it was a New York Times bestselling book, wasn't it? Oh, yes, it was very much so. And now you've produced one with, uh, you know, an addition with a new preface because the Taliban are back and they're back in power. And it's a remarkable story. And you, you're able to complete the story in a way by writing about that and bringing the whole thing up to date. So so that's just coming out this year. Yeah, it's, it's just a, a forward explaining uh, what happened to the Taliban after 9-11 and, and how they managed to rejuvenate themselves and then conquer Afghanistan all over again for the second time. It is a remarkable story, but it's, it's also a story about the, the failure of the United States and, and the, the policies adopted by NATO and the US, which, which, which left this huge power vacuum in Afghanistan as the Americans withdrew. And the vacuum allowed uh, the Taliban to re-enter the countryside and eventually to take cities. So let's go back to that first Taliban government, 96 to 2001. Actually, we probably should go back to the period before 96 when they were sweeping through the countryside in Afghanistan. It was a period when there was civil conflict in Afghanistan. Everyone wanted an end to it. And this movement suddenly emerged, didn't it? Yes. uh, The Taliban, when they emerged in 93, 94, they promised peace and stability, and they said, we we have no intentions of even uh, ruling the country. We will leave that to our elders. And all this was quite positive, and, and Afghans reacted 
and supported them because they seemed to be saying exactly what uh, the Afghan population wanted, which was security and peace and the disarming of the population, which the Taliban also promised. Once the Taliban took Kabul in 96, they actually became one of the warlords who they had been opposing all, of, all this time. And in becoming a warlord, they also took severe action against the former communist regime, liberal intelligentsia, and became extremely vindictive, which is something the Afghans were not expecting at that time. But the Taliban, you know, in, in, in their conquest of, of uh, uh, Kabul and southern Afghanistan, they were still not able to capture the north, the, the northern provinces, which are inhabited uh, largely by ethnic minorities, Tajiks and Uzbeks and Turkmans, who are very much against the Taliban uh, idea and ideology. They put up very fierce resistance to the Taliban, which ne uh, so the Taliban were never allowed to actually occupy the whole country, as they have done in the second round of Taliban conquest. And just one thing worth mentioning in this, in this earlier period and the, the pre-Taliban government period is the Americans were also wondering whether they were a force for stability and might work out quite well. And there was this extraordinary moment when a, a, a Taliban delegation ended up in Texas. Yes. The Americans were very desperate to uh, transport oil and, and, and gas across from Central Asia, across Afghanistan and into Pakistan and India. And this would be the U.S. contribution to peace and stability in the region and also beneficial for the U.S. because it was one of their companies, Unicol, uh, which has since been disbanded, Unicol, who were given the task of of, of building this pipeline. And they actually took Taliban leaders to Texas to show them Unicol's uh, enormous infrastructure and what was possible. And, uh, and, and the Taliban were quite besotted with this idea of uh, oil and gas coming from Central Asia. But of course, I mean, one of the primary demands was peace and stability. And that just never happened because the Taliban were fighting a civil war with what was then called the Northern Alliance, which was basically the opposition minority ethnic groups who were anti-Taliban. And the civil war was going to continue right up till the 9-11. The Americans were never able to get the kind of peace they wanted. Yeah, even though the Taliban never got complete control, they did manage to form a government effectively in Kabul. And they had, you know, let's say, I don't know what number you'd put on it, 80, 90 percent of the territory of the country. So there was a sort of Taliban government. And can you just tell us a bit about what that was like? Because it was a very unusual government. Every minister was, was a mullah, right? Every minister was a mullah. Many of them were very seriously wounded and were only... Uh, semi-capable of, of, of moving around and trying to run the country. Many of them were illiterate. They had no particular penchant uh, uh, for government, for governance. They were very poor on governance. They had no idea what ministers were supposed to do. And I remember going to meet the Taliban, uh, you know, in their various offices, and you, you, you'd arrive at the Minister of Interior, the Minister of Defence, and they'd be sitting there at their desk twiddling their thumbs, not really knowing uh, what are we supposed to do now. It, it was a period in which they were quite open 
they of course had banned photography, but they were they were open to the press, except nobody really came from anywhere to interview them because people said this is such a horrible regime and it's not going to last anyway. It's totally implausible. And so I had a kind of free run of the place along with a couple of other journalists interviewing Taliban leaders and ministers. That, that's right. And I do remember a Financial Times guy going and uh, he got into the finance ministry and he'd been sent to complete those forecast surveys they do in the FT of uh, global growth predictions and the like. And he, he went into the ministry, found the minister sitting on the floor, drinking some tea in a circle with his mates, as you say, doing absolutely nothing, and said, right, what are your forecasts for the next few years? And this minister, this minister just said, um, predictions are un-Islamic. <laughs> We're not doing that. <laughs> well, well, there you are. It was, it was a very difficult time. I mean, you know, the, the health system collapsed. I mean, the aid system collapsed. And uh, Afghan suffered enormously. People tend to forget that we, with today's problems in Afghanistan and the lack of food and hunger uh, widespread, exactly uh, this is what happened in ninety six after the Taliban took took Kabul. Women had been working, suddenly they were banned from working. Girls had been going to college and school and university and and they were uh, banned from doing so. And it it was a a very unusual situation for the Afghan population. Yeah, and the, the Taliban government really didn't care, did it? I mean, you're saying it didn't know how to govern. I mean, some of these people had never seen a city before. They just they just didn't know. They, they, they weren't that bothered. All they were interested in was religion. Religion and defeating their opponents. And for that, you know, they, they kept, even though they were short of money, they did receive aid from Pakistan, from Saudi Arabia, from the um, UAE. In their first round, they got a lot of money and military aid from countries who wanted to keep them uh, under, under, under their thumb. Uh, the Saudis were very interested in the Taliban because they were anti-Iran. The Taliban were considered to be very anti-Iran, which is just what Saudi wanted. Pakistan wanted a Pashtun government in Kabul that was under its thumb, and they thought the Taliban filled that agenda. At the end of the day, the Taliban filled nobody's agenda except their own, which was the implementation of of this uh, of Sharia. Islamic law and their interpretation of Sharia and this this belief that uh, we will conquer the country and we will rule it according to Sharia. But they had absolutely no idea how to get ahead and actually govern the country. I want to ask you about their religious beliefs and attitudes in a moment. But just before that, there is the whole story of the opium that was being grown in Afghanistan during the civil conflict period before the Taliban got control of most of the country. And I think you can make the case that the Americans did sort of break their word to the Taliban on this, which the Taliban very much resented, because the the Americans said, we will normalize relationships with you if you get rid of the opium production, which, to be fair, they did. That's absolutely true, yeah. They did. They they banned opium production, <laughs> but by then there they had built. There was a huge lobby in the United States and in Europe uh, against the Taliban because of their treatment of girls and women, banning them from education and also um, throwing them out of their jobs. Working women were not, you know, allowed to appear in Kabul, and and secondly there was there was no contact. I mean there was very little 
the Americans were not interested in the Taliban. They saw them as some sort of unruly local militia force. And there was no, I mean, there was no American ambassador in Kabul. There was no diplomatic effort to try and get to know and understand the Taliban and to negotiate with them on exactly issues like the poppy ban and, and how both sides could benefit. So it was a, it, for the Taliban, it was, it was disheartening and, and a, a bitter experience, which made them very anti-American over time. Something that they were not anti-American when they came in, but they certainly became it. There was a lack of American interest, the lack of international concern, which was really detrimental to the idea of peace in Afghanistan. And that, and that really forced them to take on Osama bin Laden, because bin Laden was offering them money, training, you know, special contacts with various uh, players in the Gulf uh, region. And he was acting as a true friend of the Taliban, whereas Western nations had uh, put all these conditions on them, which they resented. Yes, yeah, so this was the period uh, they're in power, as you say, sort of most of the country, and bin Laden turns up and they host him. And the Americans have rather gone back on their word regarding post-opium eradication policies and aid. Uh, so, yes, bin Laden's there. And the Americans wanted him, didn't they? Because he'd already done the Africa embassy bombing. So they, they were very much hoping to persuade the Taliban to hand him over. Yes, they had tried all sorts of things. They'd former, they had uh, enlisted the support of Ahmed Shah Massoud, the northern leader, but he was far away from where bin Laden and others were being treated as guests, which was in, in southern Afghanistan. The resistance to the Taliban was very small and weak, but was mainly in the north of the country, far away from where bin Laden was. The Americans tried several ploys, but nothing really took took shape. Nothing really gelled for them. And and then, of course, you know, 9-11 happened, in which everything changed very dramatically. Well, let's deal now with the religious aspect of all of this, because, yeah, actually, there, there were religious differences, in a sense, between bin Laden and the Taliban, weren't, weren't there? I mean, bin, bin Laden from Saudi Arabia had a Wahhabi background. Tell us about the Taliban's religious orientation and structure and background. The Taliban were largely belonged to what was the Deobandi sect of Sunni Islam. This was a sect, sectarian group that had got established during the British period in India and was considered to be very conservative, but not global jihadists in the way that bin Laden was or in the way al-Qaeda was. So they they uh, they emerged in India and after partition in 1947, a, lo a lot of uh, Deobandis came over and set up madrasas and mosques, uh, teaching venues for young people in in what was now the new country of Pakistan. And there it took a decisive U-turn because suddenly Deobandism became extremely militant in support of uh, young people. And it became a very popular movement, especially in the Pashtun areas, because it seemed a lot of their beliefs, unlike with Wahhabism and the Saudi Islam, the Deobandis were very close to the Pashtun culture. And so you had a merging of Deobandi religious edicts and uh, conservatism with uh, a very conservative Pashtun culture, which in many areas, for example, did not encourage girls to go to school and, and was a generally culture of something that other 
parts of Afghanistan had never experienced and didn't believe in. Well, it's very interesting you, you draw that comparison between the Wahhabis and the Diabandis, because I mean, you know, one way of looking at it is that the Diabandis are like South Asian Wahhabis almost, that, you know, in Saudi Arabia, if you're a conservative uh, Muslim, you'd go for Wahhabism. If, if you're in India, Pakistan, Bangladesh, you'd go for Diabandism. But what, what would you say are the differences between them? Well, again, I think, I think the differences that emerged was this, uh, this whole idea of global jihad, that mm. you want to uh, create an Islamic world and uh, and you can use any kind of force to do it. That's what uh, Bin Laden and the Wahhabis believed in. This, too, was a, a misinterpretation of Wahhabism. Wahhabism is a very conservative religion, but it is not necessarily a, a violent one. But th- this is the interpretation that uh, Bin Laden and his followers gave to Wahhabism. And a similar process was happening uh, across the border with, with the Deobandis and the Pakistani Pashtuns and other people. The Deobandism was not a conspiratorial sectarian movement. It was a mass movement. So you had Deobandis uh, opening up mosques and madrasas, dealing with with public affairs and dealing with, the, you know, getting, building up a support base and um, all that. And then, of course, you know there were there were there were differences in their uh, in their beliefs, but these were very minor, and it was more of a geopolitical thing. So Wahhabism never really took off in Pakistan or in Afghanistan, for that matter. Wahhabism was not a popular creed. There had been a lot of proselytizing and attempts to convert Afghans into Wahhabis with uh, the use of Saudi money, but it never really happened. So. Instead, the Deobandis had a, had a free run of the country because uh, this was something that they linked up with the Pashtun Valley or the, the code of the Pashtuns. So let's fast forward now to the second Taliban government because we've, we've talked about the first government, what it looked like, what it did, what its religious orientation was, and then 9-11 and the Taliban collapses. Perhaps we should just deal with that actually first because after 9-11... You know, there were many people saying the Taliban are totally finished. And I have to say, there were some people in Pakistan, I suspect you were one of them, and some in the military who said, no, uh, they're not finished. They they may well uh, come back. But, at, at, you know, at, on the face of it at the time, they were completely destroyed, weren't they? Yes, they, they were thoroughly defeated and thousands were killed by the Americans, the bombing, etc. And... Uh, um, uh, they had a, many of them fled back to their villages in Afghanistan. Many of them crossed the border and came into Pakistan and took refuge in the Deobandi madrasas in Karachi and Quetta and Peshawar cities in Pakistan. Um, but really, what uh, um, changed the whole picture was the fact that the the Pakistan intelligence decided to once again uh, line themselves up with the Taliban and enlist the Taliban in order basically to, the, the excuse was to keep India out of Afghanistan and to give India no presence there. But it was also a very ambitious policy, even though the Taliban had, had, had failed, had been destroyed by the Americans, they were suddenly being revived now by General Musharraf, who was then the president in Pakistan, and, um, and, and, and the intelligence services. And that revival, which was helped along by the Taliban living in Pakistan, etc., 
uh, really re-establish the Taliban. Now, certainly, you know, in that whole interim period from 94 to 2001, they, they, they did have a very successful military campaign with very few resources. But they laid the groundwork for what was to follow. And the groundwork was essentially Taliban in villages, uh, officials in towns and cities, who were being supported by the Americans were were reconverted into into militancy. The other factor, of course, was that the the Afghan government separately turned out to be hopeless, almost as hopeless as the Taliban were in the early nineties. They were corrupt. They were incompetent. They allowed uh, um, many of them were involved in drug smuggling, and they became you know the government of first president. Hamid Karzai and followed by the government of Ashraf Ghani became extremely unpopular. And, and um, even though there was all this flood of money coming in from the from, from Western nations, and yet a lot of this money ended up in the on the in the wrong pockets of officials and also of the Taliban. It was a, it was a, another bad period for the Afghan population. And then the victory that we all know about, and then the victory that we all know about as the Taliban took Kabul again in, a, in you know, in very short order in 2021. So when they came back for this second period of government, were they in a better place to govern? Did they know more about the world? Had these uh, Taliban elite leaders become quite uh, worldly. You know, they'd negotiated with the Americans for several years. They'd been in and out of Doha. W when they came back, were they better able to govern this time around? Well, certainly this is what everybody hoped for and everybody thought would happen because um, a, lot of their, uh, a lot of their manpower had lived in Pakistan for the last 10, 15 years. Their children had gone to university and college and uh, they were certainly much better educated. But, you know, when the Taliban came back, they came back with all the hardliners from the previous regime in the 90s. They didn't really introduce any of the young, educated people who who had been, we at least, you know, journalists thought, who had been cultivated by Pakistan and also cultivated by uh, the military and the intelligence services in the hope that the Taliban would be a different kettle of fish the second time around. But in fact, what happened was that most of the Taliban were the old guard who occupied the posts as ministers, etc. There was a power struggle that is still going on within the Taliban uh, between those very conservative Taliban leaders who we saw in the 90s and now are back in Kandahar, uh, who are, have taken the lead in banning girls' education and re-establishing the old Taliban um, policies and networks also. So there is a, there is a real a crisis now that they want to be taken seriously as a government, but of course nobody yet has registered any kind of uh, support for them or recognition. And uh, the recognition is what they're desperate to gain, but they're not prepared to change any of their policies. And this is the real dilemma for countries who are very keen that the Taliban stabilize, such as Pakistan, China, and others. They are, uh, the, the Taliban have not used their new generation of younger, educated people to, to govern. The old guard is still very much there with all the old guard 
policies. It's very difficult to see how the Taliban is going to move away from this. Most critically, of course, it's been a year now since the Taliban seized Kabul. It's been a year without any real political advancement as to how, how they intend to govern, because the way they are governing is something very ad hoc. It's, a, it's an interim government which they have promised themselves would be broadened out to be more inclusive of other ethnic groups and people in Afghanistan. But it hasn't turned out like that. We're still dealing with the same Taliban who were the commanders who conquered Kabul a year ago. Are there any in the Pakistani establishment who help support this uh, movement to get a second Taliban government now thinking, oh, what did we do? Because uh, they're not getting the stability that they wanted. Well, I think that's very much the case. I mean, the, the intelligence services all presumed that uh, because the Taliban had been living in Pakistan and now they'd gone back to Afghanistan, they would do exactly what the Pakistanis told them. And uh, to, uh, I, I, I wrote everywhere that this was not going to be the case. The Taliban were their own masters. They would make their own decisions. And a time would come when they would become anti-Pakistan because Pakistan would be seen as interfering and reducing their credibility. Many Afghans treated the Taliban as stooges of Pakistan, and they wanted to move away from that. And the only way to do that was to actually snub Pakistan and not listen to its policy concerns. But looking ahead, do you think the Taliban look like they will be in power for a very long time? Because they do now have a grip of uh, all the territory. They are strong and, and, and there are no rivals, really. I mean, they used to be always rivals, but they've all been wiped out. Well, there, there is one rival, and that is the Islamic State, which has been able to set up suicide squads and uh, militant groups in Afghanistan. But you're right. I mean, there is, the, the, and there is a resistance also from the, the what used to be the Northern Alliance, which is the Tajiks and, and Uzbeks in the north, except they are very weak at the moment. But there, you're, you're right, there is no organized resistance. There's a women's movement in, the, in many of the urban areas where women come out and protest against the Taliban's inability to provide them with jobs and education. And, and that has attracted some attention. But the fact is that the Taliban are, are unquestioned. Two factors, I think, remain very important. One is that no country in the region or elsewhere is prepared to back a resistance, a militant resistance to the Taliban. So unlike in the past, when you had all these local, uh, these regional countries backing one side or the other in, in Afghanistan, fueling a civil war, nobody's prepared to do that anymore. And I think the Americans and, and the Europeans want to wash their hands of it as quickly as possible. And I think, I think the other reason is that they still are not being recognized by the international community. But I think, you know, if, uh, and, and the Taliban have not fulfilled any of the promises they had made in Doha in, in, uh, when the agreement was signed for the American withdrawal. And um, uh, that has proved very detrimental to them. But, you know, they are still able to finance themselves, for example. Even though uh, the official Afghan money is stuck in Western banks, they're able to finance because they have set up uh, very quickly, they've taken control of the uh, trade, uh, they're exporting coal and minerals and marble, 
and uh, fruits and vegetables to Pakistan, to Iran. Now, they're not making massive amounts of money, with, and it's not going to the pub public, to the population, but it's enough to feed their army and to keep the army in the field, which is basically what they want. If, if um, people who, who hope for a change of government were looking for their weaknesses, to what extent is there propensity to get diverted by sectarian violence, you know, to basically want to kill Shias, does that weaken them? Yes, it does, certainly. I mean, because it's part of the old the old philosophy that Shias are traitors and agents of foreign powers and uh, whatnot. So so they, they have now an interpretation of all these opposition groups. Women's groups are considered to be stooges of the West and the Americans, and uh, uh, so, you know, they have an answer now for everything. That perhaps is the change of, of what, compared to what we see. They have spokesmen, they give press conferences, they've curbed, of course, the media, and it's very difficult to be, to report anything seriously from Afghanistan or, or, or to inform the Afghan public as to what is going on. There's very little discussion or debate in, in the media uh, because people are scared of angering the Taliban. Overall, you're saying that recognition is likely to be denied because their policies seem unlikely to change, and, and yet they look firm in power. So we, we, we could face the status quo for quite a long time. Yes, and, and unless there's a... I think that the biggest risk for the Taliban is internal dissension and the potential, potential of uh, some kind of internal civil war uh, between the factions. There is a moderate faction which is wants to encourage things like women's education, but they're being denied by the leadership, which is based in Kandahar, who, and, and the leaders are absolutely adamant that the old policies of the Taliban must prevail. The other factor which goes in their favor is that I think people are fed up with war. So many decades of uh, since the 1970s, there's been continuous warfare in Afghanistan. People are tired. People are going to find it, you know, leaders who want to mobilize public support for a new resistance against the Taliban will find it very difficult to do so because people are just uh, fed up with fighting. Even the resistance of M of uh, Ahmed Massoud, son of, of the um, uh, former resistance, Ahmed Shah Massoud, even he is saying that uh, He's not asking to kick out the Taliban or to overthrow the Taliban, but he wants a, a more inclusive government. So this is uh, now a recognition that uh, Afghan public is not in favor of, of a, a, a renewed war. Well, it's it's a, a very interesting to hear your analysis of it. And you were the first onto the topic. It was very prescient of you and uh, you struggled to get that book published. I remember we were in Pakistan together at that time, but you did, and it became a worldwide bestseller. So it, it, you were vindicated, and it's very, very interesting to hear your analysis. So thanks very much for, for talking to us today. Thank you very much.